2 Corinthians 13, page 1172 of your Pew Bibles. The Apostle is threatening punishment to those who are unrepentant and had sinned. He exhorts to self-examination and amendment of their lives and then concludes the epistle. Here now the reading of the word of Almighty God, 2 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you, and the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretold you, as if I were present the second time, and being absent now I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and ye are strong. And this also we wish, even your perfection. Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification, and not to destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, 2 Corinthians 13. Verses 1 through 6 here we see the apostle threatening severity and sharpness against those who are obstinate and he gives his reasons for it. Notice there verse 1, he says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. We see it reiterated in Matthew 18 for the case of an unrepentant person. We also see this in John 8, 17, Hebrews 10, 28, and 1 Timothy 5, 19. Every matter, every accusation uttered, he says, must be established by two or three witnesses. Charles Hodge makes a comment on this. He says, In the judgment of God, therefore it is better that many offenders should go unpunished through lack of testimony than that the security of reputation and life should be endangered by allowing a single witness to establish a charge against any man. This principle, although thus plainly and repeatedly sanctioned in both the Old and New Testaments, is not held sacred in civil courts. Sadly, that is the case. 
There are many instances where people's lives are destroyed by one witness who says, this person did this to me, and everybody rushes to say, oh, that must be true. They'd never make such a false and outlandish accusation. Oh, really? Is that the case? So people aren't sinners anymore. No, God says two or three witnesses, and Paul would use that very same standard when he came to judge at Corinth. Verse 2, he says, Being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. This is a warning to the obstinate, to the rebellious and stiff-necked, as Israel was, for example, that we read about. And everyone who follows in their train, he would use severity so that he would recover them. That was the goal, severity to recover them. Proverbs 13.24 tells us, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. That's like right at the dawn of the day, as soon as the problem arises, he loves him and corrects him. What about the man who leaves his child go and does not discipline him and spares the rod? He hates his son. He wants his son to grow up as a garden of weeds rather than a cultivated land. Paul says, I will cultivate you. I will not spare. There is a time for severity and discipline. We as parents or any in authority, let us not have a lawless love. This is a ditch on one side, a lawless love that will not chasten. What's on the other ditch? What's on the other side of God's road? Well, there is a severity that has no mercy, a punishment without grace, with not seeking the recovery of the offender. Let us follow the apostle's example. He is born long with these people. He has warned them now the second time, and this is the third time he's coming to them. Now he's going to punish. That means that for a long time he is born with their evils. He has waited for amendment to see if that first epistle or Titus coming and talking to them would somehow cause them to repent of their sins, but it's getting to be too late. There must be severity. Verse 3, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, they sought some kind of proof of Paul, but had he not given them signs and wonders and miracles and patience and doctrine? Were not they converted by his preaching? He had given them many powerful proofs, but they were obstinate. Christ, he says, was crucified through weakness. He seemed weak like the apostle Paul seemed weak. But notice, he rose as a king by his divine power. He liveth by the power of God. And then he says, so we also, we shall live with him by the power of God toward you, Corinthians. We may seem weak. I, Paul, may be despised by you by uttering in not these eloquent, flowery words. You may think of my bodily presence as contemptible. I may seem weak to you, but did not Christ seem weak? And yet he rose with divine power as judge of all. Paul says, I will use that power of Christ to recover you, to draw you to repentance. Church government, then, is an exercise of Christ's resurrection power, especially in the censure and recovery of offenders who are obstinate. Verse 5, he tells them to examine themselves, whether they be in the faith, to prove their own selves. Literally, yourselves emphatically keep on examining 
Now here, this is interesting. Many people turn self-examination into something that it is not. What's the context for examining themselves, whether they're in Christ or out of Christ? Well, it's this. How did they respond to the teaching of the apostle? How did they receive his corrective epistle of 1 Corinthians? Did they listen to the word of God and say, no? Or did they listen to the word of God and say, you're right. I need to repent. I need to turn from my own ways. I need to turn in repentance to God and forsake my obstinance. That's how they knew whether they were in Christ. He said, I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. That is his hope that they would understand Paul was not a false apostle. He taught them the truth of God. He was not a reprobate. Then his prayer to God in verses 7 through 10 for the Corinthians and the reasons why he prayed it. I pray to God that ye do no evil, he says. Evil sufficient to be corrected by me, that I might have to use severity. I'm praying that you repent of this evil that you're doing so that I might not have to use it. Not, he says, that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. This is the goal of discipline. The judicial discipline Paul is threatening them is so that they would be amended. Not that he would get some glory out of this case, not that he would appear approved, but rather that those under his authority might do no evil, that they might do what is honest, even though Paul should seem to them as a reprobate and a bad guy for doing it. That didn't matter. Authority then is given by God as a stewardship on God's behalf. Authority is to be exercised for the good of the inferior, not for the praise of the superior. That's what Paul's saying. I'm going to use sharpness and severity because I love you, because I want your good, because I don't want you going on in your pride and unrepentant sin. Let us all then who are in authority or who shall be in authority mortify the vanity of chastening for our own thoughts, our own reputation. Is it good to have a well-ordered house? Yes. Should a, should a man or a woman who is a father or mother do it for their own praise? No. They should do it for the good of the children, for the glory of God, for their recovery, so that they don't end up as a garden of weeds. That's the goal. Then he says, verse 8, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Church power then is ordained, and even the Apostle Paul's power was ordained not as a license to create new doctrines, not as a license to seek his own glory, but rather for the sake of the truth, for the truth in doctrine, for the truth in living, doing the truth and believing the truth. This is the power of the church. This is what the church must promote. You see, then, the evil when church powers come against the truth, either in doctrine or in living, to oppose what God commands is not church power. It is tyranny in the church. We can do nothing against the truth, he says, but for the truth. And this also we wish, verse 9, even your perfection. This is the goal 
of the Christian ministry. This is the goal of church discipline. This is the goal of the apostles writing that the church of Christ might be perfect, grown up to maturity as a full man in Christ, trained, and this word perfection means a person who's gone through a course of training and has completed it. They've come to the end of the instruction. They've received it, they've understood it, and now they practice it in their lives. That is what Paul desired. This is his wish, his heartfelt and earnest prayer and desire to God. This should be our prayer as well. This is what I should pray as a pastor and what you ought to pray for one another and for your pastors. Pray that God would make them perfect, that they'd go through the whole course, that they would apply the truth, that they would know and live according to it. Lest, he says, verse 10, being present, I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Doctors will recognize at times that they must remove a portion of a man's body to save the whole. This is severity, sharpness. He says, there might be a time when I come and am present that I have to use this sharpness, but I don't want to. I want to edify you. I want to build up the body, not remove and excise members of it. But he would do it if he had to. Verses 11 through 14, he concludes this letter with what is known as a valediction and a benediction. Farewell, he says in verse 11. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. How does a Christian fare well? How does our life go well? Well, he says, perfection, being thoroughly furnished unto every good work. How do we get that? By the inspired scriptures, those are able to make us completely outfitted to every good work. Then comes encouragement as we know the scriptures, as we are equipped for every good work and made perfect and complete the course, then we can have good comfort. Then we can be of one mind. Then we can live in peace, he says. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. You will have God's presence if you receive my instruction and correction, if you learn the sacred scriptures and live according to them, you will have God present with you. This is the promise of God's covenant, is it not? I will be your God and you shall be my people and I will walk among them and they shall be my sons and daughters, declares the Lord God Almighty. God's presence secures these blessings. Then he says, greet one another with an holy kiss. This is a physical display of affection. Now, the wicked say, oh no, wear your mask, get the shot, don't touch each other, stay away, don't see grandma. And God says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Whom do you believe? Who will you listen to? Whose authority will we submit to? There are needs for physical displays of Christian love. Now, in, even to this day in, in Eastern lands, what do they do when they greet each other? A little peck on the cheek, then a peck on the other cheek. They kiss each other. They consider that a holy kiss. But we in our society, we do not kiss one another when we see each other. We shake hands. We might embrace. We have physical ways of displaying our internal love for one another. That's what he's saying. Greet one another with an holy kiss. Verse 13, all the saints salute you. This word salute means to draw someone to yourself in an embrace of love. They're far off, 
But figuratively speaking, they draw you to themselves. They love you. They have an affection for you. All the saints do. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse 14, that grace by which the saints are saved. Then the love of God, he says, this is the love by which he gave his only begotten Son. And the communion of the Holy Ghost, he says, those things that the Holy Ghost gives us that we all have in common, the fellowship we have, that which we own jointly in the Holy Spirit. These things, he says, be with you all. I note then that God is a trinity. We see in other passages of Scripture that love is ascribed to the Spirit. Here it's ascribed to the Father. When God is used without any modifier, it's a reference, generally speaking, to the Father. But Romans 15.30 says, the love of the Spirit. Also, the communion, rather than being ascribed to the Holy Ghost, in 1 Corinthians 1.9 is ascribed to the Son of God. Why? Why does Paul choose these as he does? Well, it demonstrates for us that God is in the fullness of his being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has all of these graces to communicate to the people of God, whether it's communion, whether it's the love of God, or the grace of God. We also receive the grace of the Spirit. We have communion with him, but we have communion with Christ. We have love from God the Father, but we also have the love of the Son by which he loved us and gave himself for us. Co-equal and co-eternal. This is very similar as the baptismal formula, signing and sealing our grace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Then he says that these be with you all. Amen. All of them. Think about this for a minute. Paul's getting ready to come and to discipline them and use severity if he has to. These people have listened to the false apostles. Some of them led astray into false gospels. And yet he wishes that all of them would have these graces, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost. He loved his enemies. He loved his friends. And so ought we to love all of the visible church, even those who are going astray, we ought to pray that God would give them these graces by his almighty power. Amen. Please open your Psalters to Psalm 42, verses 1 through 5.